0: Today on Blue 58, Jamal Adams wants a trade and the Packers can always use more help on defense. Should Brian Gutekunst make a call? Well, probably not. It would be insanely hard to trade for Jamal Adams, but I think there are some reasons that it's at least worth thinking about. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of ThePowerSweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. happy to be with you here for another episode. We have a lot do. get to in this episode i think i've got five topics i want to touch on nothing that we're going to go like super crazy deep on but a lot of stuff that i think we should touch on for just a little bit so we're going to move quickly through a bunch of things but i think they're all worth talking about first and foremost we've got to mention a piece of news here about blue 58 itself Blue58 has been named a top 20 Packers podcast in the entire world of podcasts. Feedspot sent me an email this afternoon, said we have landed in their top 20, and uh, thought that was worth passing along. So I'm very excited about that. But as much as I would love to take credit, this is really your award. You do the things that make us popular. You listen to the show. You rate it. You download it. You keep listening. So I'm really thankful for that. And that we are ranked where we are is really just a reflection of what you do. So thank you for supporting the show in the many ways that you do. And uh, appreciate you helping us become a top 20 podcast according to Feedspot. So that's pretty neat stuff. There's a link to their announcement uh, in your show notes. Let's talk about Jan Stennerud. We had an opportunity this week to, to write about him, did so over at acmepackingcompany.com, kind of came to this in a roundabout sort of way. On Wednesday, over there, we do a kind of roundtable discussion on whatever topic we come up with that week. And this week, the the topic we came up with is what pre 1992 player would you add to the Packers? Figuring that 1992 was a year that everything kind of started to change for the Packers, kind of led to the era where we are now. We got a bunch of typical answers, and I think, you know, the answers that you would expect, some of the writers at APC threw out names like Willie Davis from the Lombardi-era Packers, Ray Nitschke was a popular one, James Lofton came up, all of those really good answers. But one commenter said, hey, what about Jan Stenerud? I don't know if you want to add him to the 2020 Packers, but he's a really interesting cat and kind of a, has an interesting story about how he got in, involved in football at all. He came to the United States on a ski jumping scholarship to Montana State, and one day after he had completed a a training workout, he saw a couple football players kicking around a football and decided to give that a try since he had a background in soccer. A basketball coach happened to see him kicking field goals, and the rest is history. Played 19 years in the NFL is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame and spent parts of four seasons with the Green Bay Packers from 1980 to 1983. Loved his time in Green Bay. A really interesting story, so you should check that out on acmepackingcompany.com. There is a link in your show notes. Also out this week, a very interesting article by Cliff Crystal at Packers.com. Cliff Crystal, the official Packers team historian, he writes about the 10 greatest offensive players the Packers have had since 1950. And this is a, a good piece. It's a it's worth checking out. Um, but I've got to call Cliff on something here. He made a rare mistake. There is something that we need to correct as far as how the Packers ran their power sweep. In his section about Paul Horning, which you should read because it kind of gives a little bit of historical context to why Horning is considered one of the greatest players of the Lombardi era, if not the very best one, according to Vince Lombardi. Um, Cliff, Cliff writes this, quote, Lombardi's offense in both Green Bay and New York When he was an assistant with the Giants, was built around the left halfback and the power sweep, and no matter how many times you see an NFL film clip of Jim Taylor running outside with a narrator or announcer telling you it's Lombardi's famed power sweep, heed the coach's words in his nearly 26-minute presentation on his signature sweep in his 12-part series on the science and art of football, where he says, "The halfback is the ball carrier on the power sweep." Actually, that is not true, Lombardi would run his power sweep both ways. The halfback is the ball carrier on the strong side sweep, the play known as red right 49 in the play calls that you see all the time. And when you look at that video series, if you just look up Lombardi teaching the power sweep, that is what you're seeing when he lays out the play on the chalkboard. Red-right 49 is his preferred way to run the power sweep, but that is not the only way to run it. He draws it up that way because that's the strong side sweep, and coaches always prefer to run to their strong side if they can. That's how most plays are designed to run. However, there is a left-running version of the power sweep, and that's where Jim Taylor ran it. That was the the 28 play. Whatever formation they run it out of, that play is called 28. To the right, it's 49. The four back to the nine hole. The half back to the nine hole. Wide right. 28 goes to the left. The two back to the eight hole. The two back is the full back. And he's going to the eight hole around the left end. And don't just take my word for it. You can check it out yourself in Vince Lombardi's playbook. The very first play that he draws up is the 49-28 sweep. That's what it was called in Lombardi's playbook. It wasn't called the power sweep. It was called the 49-28 sweep. 49 to the right, 28 to the left. For further evidence, here is how Lombardi described his preferred play, his favorite play. Quote, Gentlemen, this is the most important play that we have. It's the play we must make go. It's the play that we will make go. It's the play that we will run again and again and again. 49-28, end quote. If you need further evidence, here's Lombardi describing Jim Taylor running to the left in the power sweep. This is from Lombardi's famous book, Run to Daylight, describing a game against the Detroit Lions. We run our 28 sweep again and get excellent blocks from Ron Kramer and Thurston and Jerry Kramer. But their pursuit defeats us, and we only pick up four. We're in brown right, and it's an automatic. It's our 36 with the doodad involving our left guard and left tackle, but Jimmy Taylor is too anxious. He doesn't wait for the hole to open, and I hear the thud out of body of the bodies when they hit him, and I see the ball pop out, and there's a pileup, and the Lions recover. End quote. Lombardi ran his power sweep to the left. He ran it to the right. The famous way that you see it drawn up is going to the right, because that is to the strong side. That is how... Vince Lombardi wanted things to be drawn up. That's where he would run it if he had his preference, and often that was Paul Horning, and in New York it would have been Frank Gifford. But that wasn't the only way he ran it, and to say otherwise is not correct. Got a good question on our latest video on YouTube, or latest podcast on YouTube, talking about A.J. Dillon being the Packers' new Eddie Lacy. Uh, Red Dead Dillon asks, do we still see Aaron Jones, or is it going to be Dillon right away? I think this may not be the right way to think of, think about it. I don't think that it's just going to be either all Aaron Jones or all A.J. Dillon. And I think thinking of it that way, if I can use the word think a 46th time already in this podcast, thinking about it as all Jones or all Dillon kind of is the, the Madden football analogy or Madden football way of thinking about it. When you play Madden, chances are you get one back that you like and just stick with that person. But that's not really how it works in in the NFL. Chances are there's going to be a rotation. Dillon will spell Jones, maybe take over for whole drives at a time. But I think the the real way that we're going to see A.J. Dillon with Aaron Jones is, is both of them on the field together. We talked about this a few episodes ago when we talked about the Packers wide receivers and, and how they're going to work with their tight ends. Chances are the Packers are going to be more frequently in two back packages and not just like a running back and a fullback. I mean, two running backs on the field together. And that opens up a lot of interesting things for both Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon. Aaron Jones can split out wide, he can start in the backfield and motion out wide, and then you're putting in the defense in positions where it has to make choices. Do you go a little lighter on defense and try to cover Aaron Jones with a defensive back? Then you power A.J. Dillon right through the lighter formation. Do you try to go heavier and stop the run, or well, then you've probably got Aaron Jones matched up against a linebacker, and that is a good situation for the, for the Packers. That is, I think, the primary value that AJ Dillon brings right right away. But just in a pure running back sort of sense, Dillon is going to be valuable in just soaking up a bunch of carries. And I would be surprised if he got less than a hundred carries this year. That's not a that's not a whole lot. That's six carries a game, give or take six point two or so. It's not going to be enough that it really slows down Aaron Jones' workload, but it's going to be enough to to get him off the field now and then and give Dylan a chance to be a valuable part of the Packers' offense. So I think it's probably still going to be 60 to 70% Aaron Jones, and then the rest is just divided up by, by Dylan and, and Jamal Williams, maybe even a little Tyler Irvin sprinkled in there, but I don't think in terms of carrying the ball there's going to be a ton there. It's also worth keeping in mind that although he was healthy last year, Aaron Jones has not finished a couple seasons in his NFL career. He's not the biggest guy in the world. He's had some, some knee injuries. Who's to say that couldn't happen again? I mean, he's playing a high wear and tear position. It's good to have insurance around. That's part of why the Packers took Dylan, right? Uh, for this year, for next year, if Aaron Jones moves on to greener pastures, pastures where they're willing to pay him a whole ton of money, which could conceivably happen, Dillon is there as insurance, and that, that does take effect this year. Um, so I think we are going to see a fair amount of A.J. Dillon pretty early on. It's not going to be just Aaron Jones, and it's not just going to be A.J. Dillon, but we'll see a mix. But but Dillon is going to get his reps. Um, so I think you can take some solace in that if you are looking forward to seeing him on the field. And I am. So floating around the Packers corner of the internet this week is a small but I would say persistent fascination. Jamal Adams wants a trade from the New York Jets and it's easy to see why you might be interested but there are three things that we have to look at in this situation or two things really two categories of things why the Packers might be interested and then what it would take to get him. And just as a spoiler alert, I know I put this question in the title of the podcast, but I don't really think there's a super realistic scenario where the Packers go out and get Jamal Adams. But let's not focus on that part to start. Let's talk about first why the Packers might be interested. First, I think the primary benefit to getting a guy like Jamal Adams is to really soup up Mike Pettin's three safety looks. Betton loves having safeties on the field, and it's easy to see why. They can do a lot of interesting things. You can have a safety that covers deep. You can have a safety that plays in the box against the run just to do run support. You can have a safety cover the slot as sort of a nickel corner type player. You can have a safety just play as a pure tweener linebacker type. And if you've got three of them on the field and they're all good, you can rotate them around and have each of them do different things. And chances are they're a pretty athletic dude, and it's never a bad idea to get more athletes on the field. Jamal Adams checks all of those boxes. He can play deep safety, he can play in the box, he's a good athlete, he's good against the run. How good against the run is he? From Brett Coleman on Twitter, the the YouTube film analyst, quote, the Jets defense as a unit led the NFL by a lot in total tackles for the loss against the run with 80 and tackle for loss percentage of 19.2. But when Adams was lined up at linebacker, their tackle for loss rate jumped to 30%, a third of all carries against the Jets went backwards. Absolutely crazy, end quote. Again, easy to see why people might be interested in Jamal Adams, and easy to see why as Packer fans, we might say, hey, we should make a call. The question, though, is what it would take to get him, and that's where this starts to fall apart. Obviously, everybody knows that this is coming. It's going to take a lot to get a guy as good as Adams, who's as young as Adams, So what would it probably take? I think you're looking at a first round pick plus first round pick and change, maybe first round pick and a player. And if I'm the New York Jets, I don't see a whole lot of compelling reasons to say to Jamal Adams, yeah, we're just going to take whatever we can get for you because he's a really good player. And on top of that, they could conceivably have control of him for as long as they would like to with the franchise tag and Everything that goes along with that. Throwing a wrench into this is how things play out as far as the draft next year with this whole pandemic that's going on. If there's an NFL season this year, presumably there will be an NFL draft next year. But if there isn't, what are you really trading? I think a lot of teams might be a little bit hesitant to give up a draft pick if they don't know exactly how this whole situation is going to play out. Maybe complicating things even further is what if there isn't a college football season? How valuable are your draft picks if you're picking from a pool of guys who haven't played football in more than a year? By the time you get to training camp, it'll be a year and a half if there is no season this fall that gets complicated really quickly. And so I I have a hard time envisioning a situation where the Packers or any other team are going to give up a bunch of draft picks for Jamal Adams. I do think he will probably move, but I think it's going to be a tougher ask than just trading a guy who's disgruntled. There's also the matter of his contract. He has outlined a list of teams who he says he'd go to without redoing his deal. But he is going to need a new contract sooner or later, whether that's from the team that trades for him or somebody else. And I don't know if he wants to restart the, or reset the market, but I would assume, as a safety, as a safety who does a lot of things that are similar to this other player, that he'd be shooting for Landon Collins' money. And why wouldn't you? Collins signed a six-year, $84 million contract with the Redskins last spring, or spring of 2018, rather, including a $15 million signing bonus. million guaranteed. He'll average $14 million a year in annual salary. If I had the opportunity, I'd shoot for that contract too. I don't know if that's exactly what Jamal Adams wants. I don't know if that's exactly what he'd get, but that would be the number that'd be in my head if I was his agent. That'd be where I'd I'd want to start negotiations and push for higher. Your team would start there and probably shoot for lower. But hey, at least ask for the number. So I don't think the Packers are ultimately going to be in this conversation. But again, I think it's worth talking through these things and talking about why teams might be interested if that's the road they want to go down and what it's going to take um, to get a deal done. Let's wrap things up by talking a little book club. Take Your Eye Off the Ball, Chapter 14. Come down to the bitter end in this book. Hope you've enjoyed it so far. This one all about scouting and the draft. I think there were three things that really jumped out here. Two things that we'll, that we'll talk about more in depth and, and a third thing, actually four things, uh, that we'll get to here. First, how you can be a scout yourself. Corwin spends a lot of time in this book talking about ways that you can kind of sift through players that are worth considering and, and not worth considering production ratio for edge players and and defensive linemen, stuff like that. You've got the numbers out there. So you can kind of identify some players that might be interesting. But you can take things to the next level, and Kerwin shows you how. You've got the measurables on these guys, so go asking some questions. Here's how he lays it out. Quote, let's say a scout likes a player and has all the requisite measurables, but he played it two, two lane. It may be helpful to know why he went there coming out of high school instead of a powerhouse like Alabama or LSU. Maybe he's a late bloomer. Maybe his body didn't develop until he was 20 years old. Whatever information a scout can gather may prove useful down the road. End quote. Some guys just like to play close to home. Some guys don't fill out for a while. Some guys have other considerations that go into not allowing them to go to a particular school. Zedaria Smith is kind of a good example. We all know the player that he is now. He's a great player for the Baltimore Ravens before he played for the Packers. And coming out of Kentucky, he had a pretty good height, weight, speed profile, pretty good production. So, like Kerwin, you ask yourself why was he at Kentucky and not one of the elite SEC schools? Well, if you start digging a little bit, you find out that he had to go to junior college first rather than just straight to Kentucky because his grades weren't quite as good as they could have been. Now, does his bad academic performance in high school say anything about him as a player? No, there are a whole variety of reasons that go into why players don't get good grades in high school. Maybe a guy doesn't study that well. Maybe he's got a learning disability. Maybe he just doesn't care about school. Those are all things you have to consider. This doesn't necessarily say anything about who Smith was as a player, but now that you've investigated that, you know something about him that you didn't know before. These are things that all of us can do. The measurables are all out there. We can sort through guys that project as elite players or not elite players based on athleticism. That was a big part of our draft coverage this spring. But this information is all out there too. You can look up guys' bios, find out where they went to high school, what they did in high school, who their high school coach was, and kind of triangulate all that information and develop a scouting profile of your own. That's worth doing. And I think it's it's a good skill to develop, and it's a good thing that you can remind yourself that, hey, I can do this. Second thing that I wanted to talk about was sticking with your board. This is relevant to Packers fans from this spring for reasons that I think should be obvious, but let's talk about what Kerwin has to say here. Quote, let's say a team is looking at a quarterback who, after all the mathematical work is calculated, grades out at a 6.0. This team also has a prospect at guard who scored a 6.0. Numerically, the grades are the same, There's a line on the draft board that specifies area of need, and more and more personnel guys around the league are admitting that need drives decisions more than ever before. End quote. Now, there's a couple things here that I think apply to the Packers. First, sticking with your board. A thing that both Brian Gutekunst and Matt LaFleur hinted at was that Jordan Love was the top player on their board. Not only was he the top player on their board, But he was the top player on their board and nobody else was really close. So they traded up and got him at 26. Now, maybe that's true, maybe that isn't. But if it is true, I think you got to give them a lot of credit for sticking with their board. Maybe their board was bad because Jordan Love turns out to not be that good. And you can question some of their scouting decisions and how they came to the conclusion that he needed to be at the top of their board. But at least they stuck with their scouting system. You could also qualify Jordan Love as a bit of a need pick. I think there were receivers on the board worth taking. Michael Pittman is an example I've thrown out there before. But maybe Brian Gutekunst thinks that the real need for the Packers offense to get better is not a wide receiver, it's a quarterback. Not saying that is what he thinks. Or that Jordan Love is necessarily better as an option than Aaron Rodgers but it's at least something that could be part of their consideration. Again, sticking with your board is important. And if Jordan Love was indeed at the top of their board, they should be praised for that. But if it was a need pick, I think that raises some questions. And if it turns out that Jordan Love wasn't that good anyway, it raises even more, which calls into question some of their other draft picks too. Kerwin also talks a little bit about trade value. I don't have anything to add here, but I do have a link to a neat trade value tool in your show notes. You can use that to calculate the the winners and losers in various draft-related trades uh, based on a few different trade value charts. We've talked about trade value charts on the podcast before, so I'm not going to get super into that here, but check that out in your show notes and play with a couple hypothetical trades. It's pretty cool. Finally, Kerwin talks about character concerns, and this is one where I just want to make a small point here. Character concerns are very much a real thing. There are guys who have different levels of character, different amounts of integrity as people, and that is part of the process. After all, as every talk radio caller will point out, a sports team is a place of employment. This is these guys' jobs. And you are trying to build a workplace environment where you can rely on people to do their jobs, but also count on them to get along with everybody else. So you can't just dismiss character concerns out of hand as sort of pseudoscience or something that's made up. However, I think people play the results harder on character concerns than just about anywhere else in the draft process. Let's talk about Johnny Manziel just as an example since that's what he does in the book. At Texas A&M, nobody was really all that concerned about Johnny Manziel's character because he got results. And had he gotten results in the NFL and still kept up the same behavior, I guarantee you nobody would have had serious substantial concerns about his behavior. Everybody would have just said, "Hey, That's just Johnny being Johnny. That's what he's got to do, and besides, he's helping us win football games anyway. But since he didn't help the Browns win football games, suddenly all you can talk about are character concerns. Avoid playing the results. If character concerns are legit, they should be legitimate at the start of the process and not just the end of the process. Got to grade the process and the results, not just the results. And that's something that I will try to emphasize in every aspect of the scouting process, not just character concerns. But I do feel like the character concerns end up with people playing the results harder than everybody else, everywhere else. So I've got for you in this show, sure appreciate you listening in. I appreciate you helping us make us one of the top 20 podcasts in the world of podcasts today, or Top 20 Packers Podcast. Not just one of the Top 20 podcasts. We're not that big yet, but I uh, appreciate your help there. If you think somebody would benefit from hearing this show, uh, would enjoy the conversation, would enjoy being part of the community that we have kind of Created in the various places where people listen to this. I would appreciate it if you pass this episode along to them, because that's going to help us keep the conversation around the Packers going and ultimately help us all become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.